My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Boogeyman, a figment of an imaginative child's mind or an expression of terror, a name to identify one of the many monstrous creatures spotted lurking on the precipice of the civilized world. Today, we abandon all attempts to identify this creature as a stinking hot-blooded ape-man, blundering along on the land. Our guest Joshua Cutchin, author and Fortean researcher, is here to present a counter-offer. That every single far-fetched tale, head-scratching testimony, and irrational anecdote must be factored in to fully understand this phenomenon. And while most cling to biological biases afraid to venture from the materialist paradigm, Josh fearlessly poses his fresh new comprehensive outlook in the form of a two-part book series titled Where the Footprints End co-authored with timothy renner joshua joins me mystic mark here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast to discuss where the footprints end thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with joshua cutchin Print in the dew-drenched earth, the whole overstuffed enchilada Bigfoot. And this is the call of the big blonde Bigfoot. Murdoch, you're crazy. Oh. <laughs> What's interesting about Perk is that she's a tall woman in white. And she had two groups of followers that would sort of appear with her. And one of those were the Heimchen, who were these, Heimchen is German for cricket, I believe. And, uh, it was a reference, but the Heimchen in this case were the unbaptized souls of infants that appeared as little balls of light. So there you have your anomalous lights. But her other, her other group of followers were the Perks, which were a horde of frightening wild men. Uh, you would probably recognize the Perked as, you know, modern day Krampus. We talk about Krampus all the time, but uh, it would be called the Perked or the Perkton. And that opens the door to um, 
connections between Bigfoot and the devil because um, we ran into a lot of uh, what Tim would call uh, weird washing, which is cryptozoologists seem to really enjoy taking strange stories and pulling out all of the strangest stuff so that it sounds like a big monkey in the forest. I don't believe in coincidence. More importantly, neither does he. That's right. I hate coincidence. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and I am very excited to have this gentleman returning to the show. He is Joshua Cutchin, an author and paranormal investigator. He's written many books, and we're going to be talking about two connected books, this series of books titled Where the Footprints End. And I love that title because it really spells out the conundrum that I think many people who find themselves researching the paranormal are faced with, and that is where do the footprints end? Where is the evidence? So before we get to that conversation, Josh, welcome back. How are you today and how you been lately? I'm doing well. I, I just returned from a uh, one-day conference in New York, and um, it's all about UFOs. So I'm kind of on the UFO track, and I was saying my wife went with me this time. Um, you know, something rarer than a UFO is actually seeing my wife at a UFO event. <laughs> But she came with me this time and I was saying she was on the ride back. You know, I kind of need a UFO detox for a couple of days. So I'm glad that we're talking about Bigfoot tonight. That's exciting. All right. Yeah, cool. Well, yeah, happy to help with that. Although UFOs and mystery lights do broach the Sasquatch topic quite a lot. And I've had a few conversations on this show with people who have experienced those two phenomena in conjunction with one another. But I'll, I'll, we'll keep it on, on the lighter okay. end of that side of things. So, but how about, you know, cause this book was published. These two books were published quite a while ago. What have you been up to recently? Any new books on the way, anything in the works? There are a couple things in the works that I, that aren't officially official. So I should probably hold my tongue a little bit. Okay. But I've just been, um, trying to prep for some projects for next year and there should be some, some new announcements coming up soon. Um, but uh, yeah, just talking about, I've been doing a lot of, uh, press lately. I mean, you know, ecology of souls is kind of evergreen, I guess people, I'm still getting people wanting to talk about that, but I had a novel come out in late August, uh, my first attempt at that. And, you know, I just, I got hit like a bolt out of the blue with the urge to do it. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm doing this. Cause I keep on wanting to take a break between books and I keep on taking like a two or three month break and I really want to take a longer break. So, but you, when you, when the phone rings, you kind of pick it up and if somebody says, write this down, you're like, okay, I guess I'll write this down. So I got that out of my system and you know, I did it for me uh, to see if I could accomplish some things and have some certain experiences while writing it. And I think mission accomplished. So. On to the next thing, but not too fast. That's my motto. Awesome. Right awesome. Yeah, definitely leave time for uh, inspiration to strike. You know, you never know when it'll come. Sometimes it comes sooner than we'd like. But yeah, that's a fun sort of swing of the pendulum, you know, between writing and not writing. I, I imagine, especially when the encounter and first-hand accounts start pouring in over the phone. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know what's nice about you know writing a novel is that I just didn't really have a chance to sort of stretch my arms. You know, I feel like 
when I write these other books, there's so much information that has to be gotten across. And I have to leave out a lot of details and I have to, you know, because I'm always trying to show like the aggregate of what these, you know, a particular body of sighting shows. And so, you know, just the opportunity to just write whatever I wanted, as opposed to writing what I had to write was a nice change of pace and really a palate cleanser because Man, after you write something like Ecology of Souls, you kind of sit there and you're like, what else do I have to say? <laughs> so the good news is I do think I still have some stuff to say, but it might take me a little bit of time to uh, to uh, refresh the reservoir, so to speak. Right. Well, in many ways, the, the books that we're going to be talking about today, Where the Footprints End, connect to Ecology of Souls. You know, when I read Ecology of Souls, it definitely felt like you guys did a great job of collecting, you know, the various aspects of our relationship with the unknown through time, through folklore. And, you know, when you start going through some of those old accounts, it sounds a lot like things that we hear people, you know, frightfully retell today when it comes to modern cryptid reports. And I'll give you an example. I was just reading through it a book that was compiled by the conquistadors is from the 16th century so it's a little difficult to read but you know once you get the hang of the letters swaps you figure it out and there was this really strange report of the sailors in and they were giving like a historical dialogue for a moment in this book talking about hano's voyages he was a carthaginian sailor and he goes and sails along the west coast of Africa and goes to a part of Africa that was unexplored to the Europeans at that point in time. And they describe seeing these hairy, rough-looking men on an island, very short and kind of wild-looking, but they seem to be like a tribe or a civilization. And they got off their boats and they tried to capture a few of them. They were unable to capture them. Uh, they were only able to capture two females. And then later in the description, the writer who's you know, commenting on this story is like, well, they must have been baboons. So I go and I do a little bit of digging and I'm like, well, first of all, baboons don't live in this part of Africa. Second right. of all, baboons don't really swim into the ocean to go live on islands. And see, the term baboon used to refer to mythical creatures. So I kind of, I'm like, hmm, maybe they're talking about a mythical creature here and not a, a baboon and not in the sense that we would think from our modern mind of mythical creature, but more like the medieval sense of just like unknown creatures that lived outside of their known world. And that just kind of opened up a whole wormhole for me. And I'm glad that coincided with today's conversation because it does seem to line up. Well, you know, you're kind of highlighting something of a blind spot in Ecology of Souls. Um, Tim and I looked for a while to see if there was, you know, a wild man legend associated with, you know, some African country, because I realize Africa is a continent that's quite big. So you're dealing with a real spectrum of cultures. But we kind of fell upon the, you know, assumption that, you know, since a lot of these communities were living alongside apes and, and, and monkeys and other primates, that the wild man archetype wasn't as prevalent in Africa. But recently I've come across, um, I can't remember which part of Africa it is, but there is a wild man legend of, an, of something called an Otang. Mm, yeah, um, that's in and, the southeastern central area of Africa, like where Mozambique, okay. Kenya, that region. So there you go. And it really sort of does um, underscore one of the things that we sort of decided or, you know, the conclusion that we came to while writing Where the Footprints In, which was that, you know, wherever there are people, there are wild man legends. It's just something that we exist alongside. So 
you know, does every inhabited continent happen to have a relic hominid or are we dealing with something stranger that is a fellow traveler of humanity like, you know, any other sort of spirit might be? Um, right. So, yeah, that's that's fascinating that you sort of stumbled upon that as well. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is a great place to kind of foray into the topic. I mean, I imagine this is a profound idea for people to wrap their heads around, especially those who approach the Bigfoot topic from the biology, zoology, flesh and blood kind of angle, right? When did this first occur to you? Did you approach this subject through like paranormal investigations, like looking at ghosts and whatnot, or were you always interested in Bigfoot? Because it does feel like the hypothesis you guys have is that really all of this is the same phenomena. It's not these separate species that we can classify as totally different entities, although they might appear different. Yeah, I mean, I, in a lot of ways, Bigfoot was my first love. You know, I wasn't really into the UFO question at all. And ghosts were something that were never so far removed from my worldview that I really had to call into question anyway. I was like, yeah, of course there are ghosts. Next question. So my first love really was the Bigfoot and Sasquatch body of literature. You know, for the longest time, I was just absolutely convinced that it was uh, a large undiscovered hominid. And, you know, let's be clear, um, every, I think every other Fortean discipline has Bigfoot envy, right? Because you know, you've got such a great body of evidence that points to there being something large, physical, and, you know, quite frankly, biological living in a lot of these areas. But, um, you know, over time, if you have a head on your shoulders, you start to sympathize with the skeptical arguments. You really do. You know, you start to say, well, we don't have a body. <laughs> and why don't we have a body? And I know all the typical um, counterpoints that people will bring up that, oh, they bury their dead. And, oh, porcupines like to take bones and chew on them. And, you know, we don't often see bear carcasses or mountain lion carcasses in the wild. And, you know, maybe if, you know, Bigfoot's rarer than a mountain lion or rarer than a bear, then we, of course, we wouldn't run to their carcasses. But I'm like, yeah, but we have, you know, we have at some point stumbled upon them. And I, you know, cover ups and whatnot notwithstanding it just seems like we should have a body by this point you know um and uh at the same time you know so 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 if you are like me you see this incredible body of evidence um, and you also see a lot of these skeptical arguments about you know we associate bigfoot with the pacific northwest where there's plenty of land to hide but bigfoot also appear in places that they shouldn't have enough room to hide i mean they appear you know in some instances, it's rarer, but you do get reports from the high desert. Um, there's a case that we cover in one of the volumes of Where the Footprints End that talks about Bigfoot being seen in a park in Chicago. And it's like, well, there's no way that this animal is hiding out there unless it has some attributes that, you know, mainstream cryptozoology doesn't acknowledge. And the truth of the matter is, when you really look into indigenous folklore, First Nations folklore, it's been there all along. Like, you know, there are tribes that will say Bigfoot is an animal full stop, but I would argue that a plurality of tribes will say here in North America, and of course, you know, you can draw similar extrapolations across the world. A plurality of tribes will say things like, well, it's a physical being, but it 
you know, it has talents. It has these talents of being in touch with the spirit world and being able to do miraculous things where they will say, uh, you know, or they'll flat out say, no, it's a spirit or, you know, it's physical, but it can shapeshift like something about it being strange. And it's kind of an ax I have to grind with cryptozoology because they love to cherry pick indigenous testimony as long as it flatters their biases, you know, mm-hmm. so they'll be like, they'll be reading it an account and they'll be like, oh, you know, the tribe in this particular area says that there's a large creature that's covered in hair and it this is its diet and this is where it tends to be and this is what it looks like and all this stuff. But the moment the testimony says something like, and they can turn invisible, the cryptozoologists go, oh no, I guess these people are just too primitive to understand how science works. And it's like, my man, <laughs> you know, you, these people know more about the outdoors and about living in the real world than a lot of modern Westerners ever will. And the idea that they would make a mistake that obvious, um, I it's a bit gross, quite frankly. You know, I prefer to respect a lot of their a lot of their thoughts on this. No, I tend to agree with that, and I think that makes it uh all the more complicated, especially when you consider, you know, there's not one homogenous belief system amongst the Native Americans or really any indigenous group, whichever part of the world you're looking at. But what we do sense are these patterns. And as you pointed out just before, is all over the world, even in places that you would assume have no, you know, wild spaces for wild man to hide, have these wild man legends, but I mean, typically more often in rural areas, but even as you pointed out in places like Chicago or, you know, maybe Paris in Europe or something, you have these weird sightings and you're like, where does this thing come from? Or, you know, the UK, I mean, there was a brief sort of, um, news flash that went, that made the rounds on paranormal social media about some researcher, um, declaring the British Bigfoot extinct. And I'm like, or, or it was never alive in that sense to begin with. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, once you start crunching the numbers on the amount of wilderness that there is in the UK, it was never really a proposition, um, in my opinion. Um, and, uh, you know, and then you start tossing in the vast amount of just high strangeness that's involved with Bigfoot. And, you know, it seems that there is something strange going on. Now, you know, I should sort of preface this. I was at a, an event last year with Ken Gerhard, and Ken's an absolute sweetheart. I think highly of his work, but he and I butted heads a little bit on this very topic because he's very much in the flesh and blood camp. And he made the point to uh, say that uh, only 30 out of a thousand Bigfoot cases that were collected by Janet and Colin Board for their Bigfoot case book, which is a fantastic book if you can pick it up, only 30 of those cases um, included high strangeness. And I'm like, well, that's still 3%. And 3% is, I think that's kind of high, you know, especially when you consider how brief these sightings usually are. But also, you know, I said to him, I said, but Ken, like how many grizzly bear encounters do you have involving high strangeness? You know what I mean? It just suggests that there's something going on there, at least sometimes. And, you know, I'm open to the possibility that there might be an undiscovered species out there um, and that the same phenomena that is behind the UFOs, which is a phenomenon that seems to, you know, uh, select animals like owls and deer and whatnot for screen memories. This is a mass that that phenomenon also chooses that just so happens to be an animal. I mean, maybe that's what we're seeing, but a lot of these cases do involve things that are just strange. And uh, what you tend to find is that the people who 
have these really brief encounters, the ones who insist that it's a flesh and blood creature. So, you know, the hunters sitting in their deer stands who see a Bigfoot walk across a field and go into the forest or the people who have a roadside crossing line. They're the people who say, no, it looked like an animal. It moved like an animal. It looked like a giant ape. But when you run into people who are Bigfoot habituators, the people who claim to have longitudinal contact on their property or a property that they frequent where they, you know, they believe that Bigfoot exist, there's always high strangeness involved. Um, and, uh, you know, to the extent that, to the extent that if you have Bigfoot on your property and you don't want Bigfoot around, all you've got to do is put up game cameras and you will get rid of the Bigfoot almost overnight. I've kind of had the opportunity to, to see a site where this seems to have happened firsthand. So yeah, um, I don't think you can completely divorce Bigfoot from high strangeness. And that was what this book series ended up being was sort of the go-to for a lot of that stuff. Mm. Well, and I wonder if what we're really grappling with here is not just, you know, um, our understanding of Bigfoot, but rather our understanding of science itself, where science is now starting to understand that uh, life may be sort of a consciousness first sort of scenario where beings evolve not alone along the lines of what their genetics determine, but it's more of like a give and take where they're evolving alongside this sort of conscious feedback loop. And as their environment changes, you know, the, they adapt to those causes. Now, something like a Bigfoot, they, I mean, I wonder if there's not a whole nother capacity to that where they're evolving on a level of consciousness that allows them to do things like become invisible, uh, shape shift, right? I mean, uh, how much of like the new science consciousness type stuff do you integrate into your research? Yeah, that's an idea that we play with a little bit, but you know, what if Bigfoot are flesh and blood, but they're like just the most adept magical practitioners that you've ever seen, you know, right. um, uh, you know like they're, they're uh, yeah, they're just literally able to disappear in ways that no human sorcerer has been able to do. I mean, you know, there are these sort of, there are these sort of indications that get threaded through some of the things that you see. I mean, there are stick structures that some people claim point out star alignments, which is something that you would either have seen in, you know, human ancestors, but is always associated with the sacred. You know, it's always associated with tethering ourselves to the oval world as it is. And, you know, there are even indications that, uh, so I can't remember. So in Where the Footprints End, we try to be very specific about which tribes have which folklore, because as you mentioned, Native Americans are not a monolith. It's a very diverse group of people with a lot of different beliefs, but I don't have those on instant recall in my head. So I'm just going to say certain tribes, whatever, I can't remember the specific tribe, but there is a tribe that believes that they're Bigfoot analog. You know, Bigfoot's a modern sort of American term and Sasquatch is sort of a cobbled together term. But this particular tribe well, does believe that their version of Bigfoot has a rite of passage that involves being able to step out in front of a human being on a path and wave its hands in front of their face and not be seen, which definitely sounds like, you know, some sort of magic being involved. And to that extent, I believe it was a researcher, Tom Powell, who suggested that that might be an answer for why we have these roadside crossing sightings, you know, because the people, so many of these roadside crossings will say things like, you know, the witnesses will say things like it could have 
stepped across the road at any point. Like I was on a big, long stretch of highway. It saw me coming like it could have stepped out in front of me way before I saw it or just waited until I passed by. But it waited until the exact moment where it could cross the road and get across safely. And so it seems to be sort of a variation on that idea of testing whether or not they can be seen. So I kind of like that idea because it suggests that, you know, you know, three Bigfoot pass you on the way to work every day. You don't see them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like that idea <laughs> right and the padawan sasquatch is being spotted and like oh padawan shoot gotta try yeah. harder <laughs> oh man does the padawan sasquatch have that little rat tail <laughs> <laughs> well hey there have been weird sightings of sasquatch that don't fit the normal hair patterns that we see i mean everything from the skunk ape with the whole skunk pattern on its back to silver-haired albino blonde right i mean there's you know, a white bigfoot which like the idea of an animal that could be as large as Bigfoot and have a white coat just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, But you do run into that. I think there was even a a supposed photo of a white Bigfoot snapped in Ireland and it's like that would be found in like 10 seconds if that's a real thing. Right. Um, Right. There's not many glaciers in Ireland for it to hide on. (laughs) Or or Bigfoot wearing clothes. I mean, some of my favorite stories are these goofy, I mean, they're goofy. A lot of the stories are goofy. Um, but I say that with all the love in my heart. These goofy stories of Bigfoot, like wearing a flannel shirt or uh, Bigfoot wearing belts. And, you know, actually Bigfoot wearing belts is kind of a, of the small subset that is Bigfoot wearing clothing. Quite a few of them have prominent or wear only belts. And that puts me in the mind of some of the older European werewolf traditions where, you know, the manner by which she transformed into a werewolf wasn't getting bitten by a werewolf or getting cursed, but actually accepting a girdle, in other words, a belt uh, from a witch or some other magical practitioner and putting it around her waist. And that gives you the power to transform into a werewolf. Yeah. Right. Right. And this is not something that limited to the European world. There's tribes in Africa that do similar practices with the skins of leopards and hyenas and I'm sure it, it, there's parallels in Amazonian cultures with the jaguar. Um, yeah, in uh, Myanmar, it's leopards. Right. You know. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that brings in a whole nother dimension. But on the point of uh, Bigfoot wearing clothes, there are some stories from Central Asia, Eastern Europe area of a being that's described as the Almasti. And shout mm-hmm. out to our friends at Mysterious Universe because they covered this story a while back. Uh, and it's it's kind of interesting because the Almasti, and I don't know, maybe you, you can tell me what American Bigfoot's flavor preference is, but these Almasti love cheese, and they've been known to steal cheese from people's fridge, you know, kitchens. And there was even a case where a guy had a part of his house that had the roof had collapsed, and he was you know waiting to fix it. And one day he walked through that side of the house and there was an Almasti just taking up residence. Like it had just moved in <laughs> after the roof collapsed. And he's like shocked and he just kind of closed the door and never went back in that part of the house again. <laughs> I love it. I love that. I mean, maybe I'm part Almasti because I have a love affair with cheese as well. So, I mean, you know, I don't know if there's really a tried and true um, Bigfoot, but, you know, Bigfoot seemed to munch on more than anything. You know, you do hear things about like, you know, it's because of what it is, it tends to get more attention as, you know, things like peanut butter that, you know, your usual animal couldn't open without, you know, um, yeah. Um, But, you know, I don't know if that means that 
Bigfoot prefers peanut butter over other foods, or we just notice it more because that's something that you can say, oh, a raccoon didn't open up this peanut butter jar. Although right. I'm sure there are videos of raccoons opening up peanut butter jars, but you take my meaning. I hear you. Yeah, no, and that's kind of what how I wanted to approach this conversation. I mean, we're off to the races already, but you do have like this sort of, and I don't know how Bigfoot proper researchers classify these encounters, but you have like encounters where people find what seems to be the remnants of Sasquatch. Then you have the maybe more uh, the higher degree, you know, class sighting where you have an actual encounter with a Bigfoot. But then there's this kind of middle area where it's like not quite a Bigfoot because they don't see a Bigfoot and they might actually kind of have that bias implanted, right? I mean, that's kind of a part of this phenomena, but maybe we'll start with like the tracks and like what's left behind. Because one of the really strange aspects to your book, I mean, it's right there in the title, are the footprints. And, you know, people consider Bigfoot to be this five-foot toe or five-toe footprint, you know, just massive. But it's not just that. There aren't just massive footprints. People find three-toed footprints. They find chicken toe shaped, you know, like where there's a, a, you know, a a toe on the heel, like all kinds of crazy footprints. So how do you make sense of that? Well, you know, um, that was, I'm proud to say that I was the one who came up with the title, Where the Footprints End, because I think it conveys a lot. I remember talking to Tim about it and being like, I think this should be the title. And Tim was like, dang it, Josh. Yes, that's the title because... Where the footprints end, um, well, number one, it kind of sounds like where the sidewalk ends, which I kind of love that. But it also speaks directly um, to what we're talking about in this, because, you know, the thing that researchers keep coming back to as the ironclad evidence for what, for Bigfoot being a flesh and blood creature, are the footprints. They're the best evidence that we have. They've been studied by professors of kinesiology, um, anthropologists and they've seen things like dermal ridges, like the fingerprints that you get but on your toes. Um, there's suggestions of uh, what are called mid-tarsal breaks, which is a very specific part of ape anatomy that's actually a bend in the foot that human beings don't have. And so like it all, it's, it's, it's the gold standard of paranormal evidence. But at the same time, sometimes those lovely footprints, they just in the middle of a field. You know, they just, the trackway just stops and there's this unbroken snow or mud or whatever for, you know, hundreds of yards around. It's just like the thing vanished. So where the footprints end, not only is a reference to those suddenly ending trackways, but it's also a reference to where how far science can take us in the study of Bigfoot, right? Like the footprints end here, and we have to go beyond that because there's so much, you know, folklore and comparative um, comparativism that's been left on the table. And to what you're specifically referring to, um, you know, so the, so... Uh, the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization is kind of like the Bigfoot version of MUFON. Um, they talk about what are called Class B reports. And these Class B reports are those reports that you alluded to where it's like evidence of Bigfoot. You know, we don't really see Bigfoot, but people either hear strange noises or voices in the forest. They hear wood knocks. They smell foul smells. They see footprints, like any combination of those things. And, you know, uh jars of peanut butter being opened, stuff like that and really supplies uh, implies rather that there's a there's something with you know a human form lurking about in the forest um and in a lot of ways that was sort of the genesis for this book too um both tim and i um contributed to uh david weatherly's um 
third volume of his uh, book series, Woodnocks. And my look was taking a look at those Class B reports and saying, and you know, people had sort of alluded to this before, but they never really explored it. Well, you know, taking a look at those Class B reports and saying, okay, if you put all these inside a house, it would be poltergeist effects, right? Like the knocks and the moved objects and the, you know, even the gifting where you see things that are, you know, given afterward, um, you know, that appear in the forest later, or even footprints and foul smell, all these things are found in poltergeist accounts, right? So that was sort of the idea for sort of breaking this open and saying, maybe we are dealing with one thing underneath one umbrella. Now, the footprints to which you were speaking about, which we were speaking about earlier, those are mostly covered in volume two. And it's kind of, it's one of those things that it's a chapter that I think uh, bogs down volume two a little bit, but I think it just has to be talked about because there are so many strange anomalies with the footprints. The footprint anomalies have to be talked about because they're what we are constantly presented with as being the best evidence. And yet there are plenty of anomalies that should be addressed. I think that you could safely say that most Bigfoot uh, tracks are, you know, they conform to that human-like configuration, if only oversized. But you do wind up with things like you were mentioning, um, odd numbers of toes, right? Um, one of the most common ones are these three-toed footprints, which, as you said earlier, kind of do look like bird footprints. And, you know, there are some, uh, there are some explanations for why this happens. There are some people who say that uh, Bigfoot sightings in, like, the Deep South, especially in swamps in the Deep South of America, are not really Bigfoot prints. They're actually uh, the footprints of alligators that have been distorted by mud. That's fine until you get to Pennsylvania, and there are plenty of three-toed tracks in Pennsylvania. And then you get the people who say, well, you know, they're only in Pennsylvania besides the American South. The American ones in the American South are alligator footprints, and the ones in Pennsylvania are from an inbred population. And that's fine, too, until you start looking at the effects of inbreeding on humans, which tends to manifest more and not less digits. And then just look at the dadgum footprints, you know? <laughs> they just they don't look like... They don't look like they started as, you know, eight footprints. They look like they look like chicken footprints. Um, and, and the truth of the matter is you find three-toed footprints everywhere, uh, not just not just in certain isolated pockets. You know, and then on top of that, uh, well, you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, it's the Bigfoot is wounded and it's lost a toe. Again, look at the footprints. <laughs> even if they lost three, even if they lost two of their five toes and there's three toes left, it doesn't look like that. They're all equally sized, spaced, you know, again, like a bird foot or something. Um, and then you do wind up with like, you know, six. I've seen allusions to a footprint with 11 toes. <laughs> like, I don't know about that. But at the same time, like this, these are anomalies that do exist. So that has to be addressed. Something that big footers will talk about eventually, if you get to know them well enough, are that they do run into these solitary footprints, a footprint that you'll just find in the middle of an area that has media around it that's undisturbed, but it's just this one footprint as if the thing just <laughs> stepped down. Of course, you know, the, the, again, the excuse is always, oh, they jumped to a rock or something. And, you know, again, maybe in some cases, but in others not. And that's really, you know, in line with this idea of, of these trackways that end, which are very common. And I've heard all sorts of ways to explain this. Everything from... The Bigfoot backtrack <laughs> back through their footprints, which is very sophisticated. And, you know, a lot of these 
footprints that are so carefully studied show no sign of a double impression, you know, that you would expect. Um, I've also heard that the Bigfoot carry behind them uh, a branch with leaves on it to brush out their footprints, and that's why the trackway's in. And I've also heard that, oh, the Bigfoot jumped to a tree, and, like, that's fine, but then you, you look at some of these settings, and you are hundreds of feet away from the nearest tree, and even those trees wouldn't be of enough size to support something that probably weighs, honestly, they're always underestimated saying these things weigh 300 pounds. If you're seven or eight feet tall in this muscle, you don't weigh 300 pounds. You weigh like four or five, maybe even 600 pounds. I mean, the animals that can jump the farthest um, in the animal kingdom are the Klipspringer, which is a type of antelope and the snow leopard. And those max out, if memory serves, at a horizontal leap of 100 feet and a vertical leap of 50 feet. So, okay, well, and then people will say, okay, well, Bigfoot's just the best jumper in the animal kingdom. Like, okay, now it's the best jumper in the animal kingdom, and it's also the most stealthy animal in the animal kingdom, mm. and it's also the only mammal with bioluminescent eyes, the only animal with bioluminescent Like, you keep on piling all these unique attributes onto what you're arguing is a biological creature, and at some point you have to say it can't be the best or the only at everything. Yeah. And then you start looking into the folklore, and the mythologies and the religions, and you see the exact same things that are discussed in these contexts popping up in those other contexts as well. And it all really does suggest to me something that, you know, our ancestors would have called spirit. Um, I think a lot of First Nations tribes accurately call, you know, spirit, but that we just don't really have the intellectual tools to explore right now and is probably again i would imagine it probably come from the same place as the ufo stuff and as other cryptids and as ghosts um i think it's if it's not the same thing then it's using similar methods to navigate our reality and uh, you know shares a lot of attributes in common with those other things maybe comes from the same place and isn't the same thing or it's the same thing i don't know but there's some sort of connection there i can say well, and it certainly brings to mind this concept that you have in your book, and you touched on it before, with the Religio Magico Bigfoot, or as I like to think of it, a, a Bigfoot shaman. And I have spoken to an author not too recently who is from the west coast of Canada, so British Columbia, and he spoke about and wrote about his relationship with an elder Bigfoot who he psychically communicated with and learned all sorts of stuff. And it really, I mean, it tracks like what you would imagine from like someone who's channeling ascended masters. It's very similar right. to that sort of thing. But given that, you know, this is just one person having this experience, have you heard of other similar encounters where people actually form some sort of relationship by beyond gifting because we hear a lot about the whole gifting thing you know you leave something on a stump and come back and sasquatch messed with it and maybe left you something in return but are there any encounters you've heard where people actually like seem to form a relationship with a bigfoot yes <laughs> there is oh i'm trying to remember her name uh i believe it was uh Janice Carter Coy, who is a Bigfoot habituator. Um, and habituators really do sort of run the gamut between people that you might find highly credible, that you find completely um, incredible or uncredible, I guess. 
um, Janice Carter Coy has made a lot of really fantastic claims, but um, she has claimed that uh, she, I mean, she's one of those people who claims that, you know, the Bigfoot brush out their tracks, but um, she's also claimed to have invited them inside her house and, you know, shared food with them and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and uh, what were you saying about before that? I'm trying to remember. We're saying about the, shadow. Oh, the sort of, yeah, the sort of long-term relationships. Uh, I mean, yeah, you, you do find that from time to time. There are some indigenous informants who talked to Rob Riggs about Bigfoot sightings in the Big Thicket. And, you know, there was this implication that, uh, that you know, if you are in a peaceful state of mind, only then will the hairy people come out to see you, you know, if you're meditating. Um, and if you bring guns, then they're not going to show up. And interestingly enough, like, again, Dmitry Bayanov, who did a lot of research on uh, uh, the Almasti as well, uh, I believe it was the Almasti. But anyway, another Bigfoot analog in, uh, I believe it was like the Urals, that sort of East, those Eastern Bloc kind of area, um, discussed how those creatures also were aware of the moment that you strapped on your iron, like that they weren't going to be anywhere around. So you do find this sort of, I just think it's fascinating, number one, that you'll hear that from Texas and these communities and, you know, in uh, Eurasia, but also, you know, I, I just think it's interesting that there's that sort of uh, transfer of knowledge that goes on. And that's something that's talked about a little bit more than it used to be, which was this idea of mind speak, the idea that Bigfoot could telepathically relay messages to witnesses. And you will hear stories about, um, you know, Bigfoot warning people to not take shots, both in terms of, you know, firearms and in terms of photographs. You'll hear, you know, stories of people i'm trying to think of an example right off the top of my head i know that the flavor of it which is that um you know leave us alone and we won't bother you just things like that these uh, these interjections into a witness's internal monologue that are either seen in conjunction with some of that class b activity that we mentioned or in the in proximity time-wise to an actual sighting of bigfoot you do hear these stories i mean the most famous person who has experienced something um, like mind speak would be would be Survivor Man. <laughs> um, I believe his name is is Stroud, Les Stroud. Yeah. Um, and one of his experiences, he was um filming in Tennessee, and he said that he actually sensed these two presences on a nearby hill that basically said to him, you know, if you want to meet us, stick around for the night. We're over here, but you have to stay. And he just decided he wasn't ready for it. And, uh, you know, went to a psychiatrist after that because the voice was so present and the uh, psychiatrist gave him a clean bill of health and that sort of kicked off his Bigfoot obsession, um, which has continued to, into now. So, you know, for the longest time, there was this consensus amongst, uh, there was this con consensus amongst cryptozoologists that like, you know, only the crazies talk about mind speak, but it comes from people who are a, a good deal more credible. I spoke to a a witness myself who also had uh, an experience of mind speak as well. He was, if memory serves, um, delivering some medical equipment, some home medical supplies. And he heard this sort of voice in his head that there was this dark shape that came to his, to the edge of the forest where he was actually dropping off these, these supplies. And he heard this voice say, you know, we appear when we want to. And then just sort of re retreat back into the forest. So, um, yeah, it's odd. It happens, and it's completely in line with 
what we hear from the ET stuff, right? That there are these methods of communication that human beings don't use or that we have the ability to use and we don't use that where they can sort of speak directly into your mind. Now, occasionally these interactions do get a little bit more fanciful. I mentioned the Janice Carter Coy stuff. I also mentioned, uh, or, you know, there's also, uh, oh, Kiwani Lapsaratus, um, whom, you know, I, we have mutual friends in common. Um, so, you know, I won't necessarily speak ill of him, but I will say that, you know, when I read his stuff, I kind of get the same feeling that I do when I read these UFO experiencers who have these elaborate stories. And it's not that the story is too, it's not that the story is too fanciful for me. It's just that it's a little bit too specific. It's the Star Wars problem is what I call it. You know, when they're like, oh, the Zebelmarbian Galactic Alliance has been at war with the Carflaxians for, you know, 15 millennia. But when it gets really specific and it steps outside of that, I don't know what's going on, but this seems to be what is being imparted to me. That's when I say, well, maybe, you know, not that the person is lying or fabricating, but that an aspect of their own desires and personalities is sort of creeping into their testimony. And that's where I'd leave that. Yeah, no, I think that's very well said and a great way of explaining that. And yeah, oftentimes there's this whole paradigm shift and maybe it's not as radical as the more fanciful <laughs> folks suggest because, yeah, I think at the heart of what we're talking about, it is paradigm shifting, but not so much in the way that we need to accept maybe a whole nother, you know, overlay of, of political galactic wars. I mean, we got enough <laughs> yeah. wars on the planet already, right? But <laughs> it is compelling this, to hear where Sasquatch and UFO encounters overlap. This idea that Sasquatch is almost like a uh, a previous incarnation of humanity that's been here much longer than us and sticks around as like a, a brother, a guardian of our human race. But, you know, aside from the more fanciful speculation type, you know, explanations, it seems like consciousness precedes these encounters. Like, and you hinted at this before, and I think you really kind of nailed it when we spoke about Les Strauss in the sense that, you know, what a person has in their mind precedes their encounter, such as the weapon, right? As a level yeah. of fear when you have a weapon it's, with you. It's set in the setting, man. It's yeah. set in the setting. You well, know. and I, that kind of leads me to ask you, like, how important do you think the setting is? Of course, the flesh and blood people will say, oh, well, you need to be in a place that could support a species like this. But I wonder if it's more of you need to be in a place that has this liminal magic quality where these sorts of beings, Sasquatch or otherwise, just tend to be places where there are maybe stone circles, places that have lore associated with maybe even caves. I mean, Tennessee is on the Appalachian mountain chain. There's tons yeah. of caves in that area. Uh, I wonder, you know, how much of the landscape plays into these encounters. Yeah, it's long been speculated that uh, Bigfoot dwell within caves. Um, but, you know, you can even extrapolate further from that and say that there's also an incidence of Bigfoot seen around old abandoned mining operations. And this is when every now and then I did this with Tim and Tim did this with me. Um, we come to each other with a trend that we'd notice, a pattern that we'd notice. And we'd say, I don't think that's actually a thing. And then we'd be like, oh, no, it totally is a thing. The other one would say, oh, yeah, 
So one of those things that uh, that Tim came up with was this idea of buried treasure in Bigfoot. I'm like, really? But he's like, yeah. He says, you know, the the mine is uh, a variation on the buried treasure trope, right? There's wealth hidden within the earth. Um, and the more I looked into it, the more I did find, uh, <clears throat> the more I did find um, examples of places where there is supposedly buried treasure. I believe there's a Jesse James. That was the outlaw, right? Jesse James. There, there's a Jesse James. Uh, it's a Jesse James State Park. I'm trying to remember where it is. Hold on. Okay, well, I don't, I can't find it. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. And <laughs> there is a Jesse James, there's a park in Oklahoma called Robbers Cave State Park. Okay. And it was a refuge, supposedly, for Jesse James, and now, supposedly, there is a, a buried treasure of Jesse James is there. And, um... Just so happens to have Bigfoot sightings. There was a fascinating story of a Bigfoot on Oak Island. And you know, you can't get much bigger in terms of buried treasure than Oak Island, but there was a Bigfoot sighting of a watchman who had this basically he had sleep paralysis involving this Bigfoot, and it drove him, if memory serves, um to an early grave. It was so affecting of him. He sort of ended up basically drinking himself to death. Um so uh there does seem to be this buried treasure motif. And you do see that obviously with, you know, the fairies. You see that with not only obviously with leprechauns, but with just all sorts of fairies sort of being around areas of buried treasure. And I remember distinctly, um, I had some relatives move to a portion of Florida. And when I looked at the portion of Florida, I was like, oh, holy cow. Outside of the Everglades, this is like ground zero in Florida for Bigfoot and skunk ape sightings. I, I made a remark to them on this, uh, to this effect. And they said, well, it's interesting. They said, I never really heard much about Bigfoot growing up here because they returned to where they'd grown up in this part of Florida. So I never really heard about Bigfoot growing up here, but there were always a bunch of stories about buried treasure from pirate ships. And I'm like, there you go. Again, right. the trend holds fast. So, you know, I don't know if that's just myth making about certain strange and spooky areas or if there actually is a, a connection there but you know if you nestle that within the greater context of similarities of bigfoot two fairies of which there are plenty that we can talk about there um then it does seem like it's sort of part and parcel for this these beings that occupy this space in our imagination which yeah. and i say that not imagination as imaginary but imagination as in imaginal as in sort of straddling the line between reality and fiction yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think those lines become blurry, you know, when you start diving into what people experience. All right, here we go to our scheduled ad break. Of course, if you want to experience the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast ad free, go over to the Patreon, sign up today. Let us know that your family thinks you're crazy and uh, yeah, support the show that you love. Thanks for being here, and uh, yeah, we'll be right back to the show after this quick break from your dynamic ads. I have no control over what you're about to hear, so I apologize if you hear some kind of crazy ad from the government or who knows where else. Going back to the idea of treasure guardians, the dragon is often, you know, depicted as a treasure guardian. And 
The dragon can be interpreted as this sort of serpentine, feminine aspect of consciousness. And I wonder if Bigfoot itself is in a a similar expression along those lines. I mean, the first Bigfoot ever allegedly caught on camera looks to be a female. And there is this whole woman in white phenomena that is associated to that you guys have a section in the the series about. Well, yeah, the whole woman in white thing, I was so... That was another one of those things that Tim came to me with, and he was like, yeah, Bigfoot are associated with aluminum and white. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he was basing this off of uh, a story that he had heard on the Sasquatch Chronicles podcast about this, this two brothers who were habituators, and they not only had a bunch of Bigfoot activity, but at one point they had this incredibly tall, disheveled woman with these oversized feet, you know, oversized shoes, almost like clown shoes, walking across their property as well. And there were some indications, I can't remember all the details of the story, but there were some indications that a psychic was brought in and she expressed that this woman in white, because um, she was wearing this dirty white clothing, it was dirty, but it was you know white clothing, is associated with Bigfoot. And then once you start picking at that, you find all these different connections. Um, there was a saying at one point, in uh, the Elizabethan era, that those who die maids lead apes in hell. And uh, there was some anti-Catholic sentiment wrapped up in this, but the idea was that, you know, you don't lead apes in terms of, like, leading them in a procession. You lead them in terms of, like, having intercourse with them. So what's the color? What's the virginal color? The virginal color is white, you know. Um, And, of course, that sort of was also, there's another, it seems that particular Elizabethan phrase was, actually uh, picked up and used by Thomas Campion, who used a variant on it that said, they that yet have not said on delights amorous, she vows that they shall lead apes in Avernus. And Avernus meaning hell. And in this case, it was this was uh, attributed, the she in this quote was attributed to Proserpina, uh, who was Urbanus queen of the fairies. So you've got this, this uh, mixing right there. Um. But also, one of the things that I find, I mean, there's tons that you could pull apart on this. I mean, we're recording right here before Christmas, and there is a uh, there's a figure from from Teutonic pagan belief of this moon goddess named Perkta. Um, and it was said that she was, you know, sometimes depicted as this very tall woman in white. Um, she would have feet that were like a goose's foot, which puts us in the mindset of these bird-like footprints. But also, I just recently learned that... Um, Frau Perkta might have been an inspiration for Mother Goose, as it turns out, which is something I just learned. But what's interesting about Perkta is that she's a tall woman in white, and she had two groups of followers that would sort of appear with her. And one of those were the Heimchen, who were these, Heimchen is German for cricket, I believe. And uh, it was a reference, but the Heimchen in this case were the unbaptized souls of infants that appeared as little balls of light. So there you have your anomalous lights. But her other her other group of followers were the Perked, which were a horde of frightening wild men. Uh, you would probably recognize the Perked as you know, modern day Krampus. We talk about Krampus all the time, but uh, it would be called the Perked or the Perkton. And that opens the door to um, connections between Bigfoot and the devil, which we can put a pin in. But I'm not quite done with I'm not quite done with the woman and white connection because. Um, we ran into a lot of uh, what Tim would call uh, weird washing, which is 
cryptozoologists seem to really enjoy taking these strange stories and pulling out all of the strangest stuff so that it sounds like a big monkey in the forest, right? Um, the case in point would be the Ape Canyon event, which is a very famous event that happened at the foot of Mount St. Helens where a group of miners, and I believe it was 1924, that summer, uh, were attacked in their cabin by a group of Sasquatch. And the story that you always hear repeated on television and, you know, in the Bigfoot museums is that these miners took pot shots at a Bigfoot and the Bigfoot came back to the cabin and they got angry and they were reaching through the gaps in the cabin walls and they were throwing boulders at the cabin, et cetera, et cetera. But if you actually talk to the, not quite the sole witness, but one of the main witnesses from which we have any information about what happened in the cabin that night, Fred Beck was his name. He actually wrote a pamphlet, um, and in that pamphlet, he describes such things happening at the Ape Canyon site as a pair of footprints in a sandbar that was just the pair of footprints. In fact, someone at the time uh, remarked that it looked like something had been dropped from the sky and pulled back up again. Fred Beck had a pencil, a port into his hand at the Ape Canyon site when he was in need of one. But to me, one of the most interesting things, which is related to this woman in white phenomenon, is that uh, the way that they actually staked their mining claim was that they, they, Fred Beck had a vision from a spirit, which he doesn't really elaborate on her appearance, but he claimed that her name was Vander White. So a white, well, woman in white, you know. Um, and they actually ended up following an arrow in the sky <laughs> to the location of their mining claim. And, uh, you know, apparently there was some sort of indigenous spirit guide that was involved along the way that he didn't really explain either. But it's just a classic example of how you have this really weird story and none of the details really get talked about. And cryptozoologists will do things like they'll acknowledge it and they'll be like, yeah, but Fred Beck was kind of crazy. He was, you know, he was into spiritualism, you know, his family. He seems to have had, you know, a lifetime of experiences like that. But at the same time, like if he's one of your primary sources, it's disingenuous to leave out those details, whether or not you think he's full of it or not. Like, you know, because he, again, you think it undermines your argument, so you leave it out. It's kind of infuriating in that regard. But Fred Beck was convinced that these creatures that attacked the cabin were not solely flesh and blood. He acknowledged that they did have a physical presence, but that they seemed to be um, some sort of different, they seemed to be have a psychic quality. And that's the thing that um, I would emphasize to people who are having trouble wrapping their heads around the abundance of Bigfoot physical evidence and my arguments and Tim's arguments that there's something strange going on with Bigfoot. If you really look at all of paranormal slash unexplained phenomena this way, I think it really helps to make sense of all of it. And that's the fact that whatever we're dealing with here, just like I was talking about something skirting the boundary between the imagined and the real. I think all these things do that. And, uh, you know, you've got psi phenomena that is intangible in your head, but seems to affect and interact with the outside reality that we all share. You've got ghosts that slam doors and leave footprints in talcum powder. That was one of the earliest ghost hunting methods. And you've got, you know, whatever the heck the UFOs are doing, right? Which seems to definitely be part, you know, 
physical and part metaphysical. So why wouldn't, why couldn't rather Bigfoot be part of that as well? You know, if ghostly footprints, then something that whatever Bigfoot is could do that as well. And that's, that's really important. And that seems to be exactly what Fred Beck was driving at when he was describing the Eight Canyon event and how he was led there by a woman in white. Mm. Wow. Now, I want to get back to your connection between Bigfoot and the devil, uh, mostly because I just moved to one of the only places in my home state that has Bigfoot sightings. And go figure, right down the road from me, there's a part of the state that's always been known as Satan's kingdom. So, and that's the Winchester Wildman sighting. It's everyone's favorite amusement park. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it is a go figure. It's a raft. It, people do go there for amusement. There's a tubing company that has people, you know, they ship them down the river through Satan's kingdom. But I had a hard time figuring out exactly why they named the area Satan's kingdom. I've found multiple sources with differing you know, opinions on why it's called that. But it is interesting, the Winchester Wildman, I think it was in the 19th century. Uh, and it's, as far as I know, one of the few sightings from that era in this area. I, I could be wrong because I haven't really dove into this material as far as the local material goes. But I would imagine the majority of the Bigfoot sightings in New England are up in Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, and not in Connecticut. Although Connecticut does have a little bit of the Appalachian Mountains inside of it yeah i think you'll find bigfoot pretty much anywhere i mean it's just right. been kind of common knowledge or accepted consensus knowledge that bigfoot doesn't appear in hawaii but if you look enough you can find giant legends in hawaii that sound a lot like bigfoot legends and right you know stories of these dark shapes moving through the forest on two legs incredibly tall but if they'd happened in you know oklahoma we'd be saying bigfoot <laughs> all day long you know? right um but yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes you look into those Satan devil names and sometimes they're really mundane. Like, you know, every now and then I run across these roads that are named Devil's Backbone. You're like, oh, it must be really, it's usually just a really curvy road, you know? Right. But, but there are a lot of places called Devil's This and Devil's That um, that do seem to have an association with, with Bigfoot sightings. Uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Franzoni who actually released in one of his books a table that listed locations with the name devil in their name, with the word devil in their name, and sort of cross-referenced those with the number of Bigfoot sightings and found a pretty strong correlation. And, you know, if you look back through, like, you know, early settler literature, you'll find reference to these things as mountain devils. And even amongst, you know, Native Americans, certain tribes would call them, refer to them as devils or they'd be translated as devils so to a certain degree who knows what they were actually saying but mm. there's always been this connection of devils to uh to bigfoot to these hairy hominids and it's kind of a long and winding road to get to that point but one of the one of the things that you could say is that uh, the devil was oftentimes depicted as being hairy and covered in hair you know um and uh that certainly seems in line with what we would think of as Bigfoot. Wild men had an association with the demonic because it was part of the pagan tradition that got suppressed by the church. But there's also another interesting sort of circuitous route to get from the devil to Bigfoot as well. And that is using the folklore figures, the mythological figures of the, the fawn or the satyr. Um, you know, fawns were half human, half goat. And 
every mythologist will tell you that, you know, the fawn was the prototypical wild man. It was this being who was covered in hair and lived on the fringes or of civilization or, you know, deep in the forest. And, you know, because a lot of these, because of its association with paganism, there was an association between fawns and satyrs, depending on, you know, Greek or Roman, and witchcraft. And to the extent that people sort of, a lot of people in art and then, you know, other media picked up on the image of the, you know, half human, half goat fawns and sort of combined that with the image of the devil. And so you, that's where we get our cloven hooves from the devil. So you have fawns being wild men and Bigfoot being wild men and fawns being an inspiration for depictions of the devil. And it all really sort of comes together. Interestingly enough, um, there was a case that took place in Labrador, Canada uh, in 1913, and it was known as the Traverse Spine Gorilla. Uh, that was the area. And you read the story, and it's, it looks just like a Bigfoot story. It's a large ape-like creature peering into the, the peering through the window of a cottage. But what it left behind were not five-toed Bigfoot tracks, but it left behind these giant cloven hooves that they compared to the hooves of an ox. So you've got a cloven-footed Bigfoot. So there's another connection right there. Yeah, yeah. And then even Pan and, you know, the whole fawn concept and the green man even are all sort of blended in together. And, you know, you mentioned yeah. if you have thoughts on the green man, please share. <laughs> I, I do. I mean, it's, uh, so now when I, so the green man is this figure that does seem to be archetypal because it appears green men and green women, but the green man more generally appears in cultures independently without any apparent, you know, cross-contamination, so to speak. So it just appears in these cultures and it's a face that's wrapped in this floriate motif. And that's also tied into these pagan rebels because the green man is associated with Dionysus. Um, and the green man is also connected to Bigfoot in the sense that, I mean, Bigfoot's kind of, I mean, the green man is a wild man and Bigfoot's kind of a wild man as well, but there are some allusions to, uh, in England, there being a dance of the uh, uh, green man or dance of the wad roses, put a pin in that, also being referred to as the dance of the monkeys. So you've got this, you know, monkey green man connection there. Um, but uh, this, that idea of the wad woes or the wood woes um, is also very closely tied into Bigfoot and will get us around to something else that's appropriate this time of year. So the, you might hear it referred to as the wood woes, but more accurately, I think it would probably be called the Wadwos, was a tall, hairy, wild man uh, in English folklore that was so closely associated with fairies that you'll find it listed in some fairy encyclopedias, which again underscores the fact that wild men are sort of a, of that same ilk. But the Wadwos gets its name also from Odin, Wad, Odin, um, and this idea of being big and bushy and hairy, right? Um, and, uh, Odin presents lots of connections to the green man and Dionysus, but, uh, Odin also presents extensive connections to Santa Claus and as luck would have it, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that people would call, uh, satyrs and fawns sort of the prototypical wild men. Um, there's a consensus amongst mythologists that Santa Claus, not the Christian St. Nicholas, which is, you know, kind of 
gotten shoehorned in there as well. But the figure of Santa Claus is again sort of a sort of one of those fundamental wild man archetypes. So you could say that Santa Claus is a Bigfoot, you know. <laughs> now that's something that I'm sure is going to shock <laughs> many Christians ready to celebrate Christmas this year. But I mean, that's not the only thing that you can take apart. I mean, the Christmas tree is inherently an Egyptian type of ritual that, you know, eventually made its way into this ritual that's now very, at least in America, very Christian. But in Europe to this day, people dress up like these wild men, right? Around this time of year and right. walk through the town and they'll like, you know, have these big bundles of sticks. And I mean, it's kind of frightening. And that's tied into Perkta, who we've already shown has some sort of you know connection to, to wild men in a way as well. There's also the Pennsylvania Dutch tradition of the Pelschnickel. Um, that was a member of the community selected to dress all in furs and show up around Christmas time and like dressed all in furs, like head to toe in furs. So it looked like a big furry person and would come to your house. And depending, I think, depending on, again, depending on whether your child was good or bad, would either scold them or offer them treats. So, and uh, you know, Tim pointed out that the, uh, the Belshnickel would also tap on your window, you know, to let you know that it's there. And that's something that we see Bigfoot doing as well as in a lot of these stories. I mean, this is probably the most, one of the most frightening scenarios I could think of. P people here are tapping at their window and they open the blinds and there's a Bigfoot staring back at them. I mean, this is really common. That and uh, the sound of Bigfoot running along the top of your house, which uh, I looked into it. There, there are homes that are strong enough that their roofs, the roofs could support something as big as Bigfoot. But um, again, that idea of Bigfoot running along the top of your house Sounds a lot like Santa Claus burning along the top of your house before hopping down the chimney. So again, it's nothing that you have to sort of like wade into these waters of the power of belief and the power of imagination that seems somehow able to change according to our expectations and under certain conditions when beliefs become ingrained enough take on a life of their own. And I mean that both in terms of the way that this, um, that these beliefs spread, uh, independent of their origins, but also, I mean that to a certain degree in very specific circumstances, it seems quite literally take on a life of their own and manifest in something that has an objective reality to it that can leave behind hair and footprints and in the case of Bigfoot, even poop sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. Or maybe even coal. I mean, think about, you know, this whole idea of gifting from the angle of Christmas squatch coming down your chimney. I mean, if there was a creature that could do that sort of journey so quickly in a night, I mean, it might be the super athletic Bigfoot wild man climbing down chimneys and all the other things, right? Well, and we have these stories of Bigfoot that are not only shapeshifters, but size shifters as well. There's a famous story, I believe it was from Puerto Rico, of a Bigfoot that appeared and then slowly shrank until it turned into a little ball of light and then sort of winked out. Wow. Um, and then these other sightings that you see that are of these sightings of these things that the cryptozoologists will call Littlefoot. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate between cryptozoologists of like, oh, it's a Bigfoot subspecies or it's a juvenile Sasquatch. But if you look back at a lot of descriptions of um, the Fae folk and you look at a lot of, you know, contemporary fairy sightings, 
lots of times they'll describe, you know, when it's not a person dressed in the stereotypical peasant garb, you know, they'll describe a little hairy person. I mean, that was the go-to description for the Scottish brownie and the French goblin, you know, before we sort of reinvented those in pop culture was that they were short, hairy, and had simian characteristics. Well, and the funny thing about the brownies, too, is there's a level of mischief with brownies where, like, you know, they may mm -hmm. be the guardian of your area, but you start gifting stuff to them and they end up helping your neighbor instead of helping you. Like, they're very, you know, they're not exactly these, like, uh, you know, prudent or moral creatures. They they have a trickster element to them. And I think that, you know, brings us to uh, kind of an overall theme you see throughout all cultures and just before we leave towards that, I want to mention on the note of the short, hairy people, that's exactly what I found when I looked into the whole baboon thing earlier. It was on St. Thomas and Prince Island, which is Portuguese, Sao Tome and Principal. Uh, it's off the coast of the Cameroon. And in that area of Africa, they have a legend of a creature called the Gne, which is spelled G-N-E-N-E. -E. And it's basically exactly what you just described, a short little hairy human-like creature that does its own thing and lives in the jungles and along the river inlets on the coast there. Yeah, I mean, you've got, you know, the Tukalosh of South Africa. And uh, it's interesting that in the Salem Witch Trials, uh, Tituba, who was the uh, Caribbean slave, she was the sort of at the she was at the center of a lot of this testimony. In her testimony, she described a little person that she saw at one point who was hairy all over. Their face was hairy and the nose was long, but it walked like a, like a person, but it was only two or three feet high. So it's this mixture of fairies, Bigfoot, and witches, or, you know, witchcraft testimony, all really blending together. And, you know, that's sort of getting into a bigger problem of like, you know, fairy folklore and how it sort of travels with different populations as they're displaced and whatnot it travels really well but yes yeah, it's 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 a rabbit hole it really is it really is absolutely now excuse me if i missed it but did we clarify everything about the dancing wadroses was there more to that or is that just another sort of regional variation of this whole theme that's just sort of a that's a passing observation i mean there is an there is a an argument to loosely be made that, you know, you have this recurring theme of these circular shapes that are found in certain areas. You know, at one point they were the, the fairy circles, the fairy rings. You know, if you have a, a landscaper today, they're still going to call a circle of mushrooms in your yard a fairy ring. <laughs> but you also have, you know, uh, in the UFO lore, you had saucer nests long before you had crop circles. And, you know, there are these supposed Bigfoot nests that appear from time to time. It's the only sort of tenuous observation I think you could make but you know maybe there is something to that too well it's interesting you bring that up because we were just talking about as you mentioned Tichaba and the whole Salem witch trial thing uh, in your I, I believe it's in the second book you put not this book these books um, you put some information together about stick dolls and what look like hex signs that are found in the forest. I mean, this seems like witchcraft. I mean, a shaman Bigfoot, maybe even a, a witch Bigfoot, right? And even like the jack-o'-lantern, you know, obviously we just talked about the Christmas connections. There's even, you know, Halloween connections to this 
creature or this whole, you know, pantheon, if you will, uh, of variations of this phenomenon. The jack-o'-lantern may be based on similar concepts. Yeah, and, and you know, the jack-o'-lantern is sort of mixed up in these sightings of anomalous lights and ghost lights and things like that, which is, you know, I guess Tim and I just hit the crest of the wave at the right time, because as we were sort of putting the finishing touches on where the footprints end, the Bigfoot community was finally opening up about the anomalous lights. And, you know, I'm fond of saying that if you get the ufologist to the bar at the conference after their lecture and you get a drink or two and then they'll start talking to you about synchronicities like they'll open up and you know even the proponents of the extraterrestrial hypothesis will say yeah there are some weird sort of reality bending you know uh, synchronicities that happen around ufos but it's all aliens right but similarly if you can do the same to a bigfooter and get a couple of drinks in them um they'll start talking about the anomalous lights and they might not necessarily think that there's a connection there, but they will say things like, you know, we went out to site X and we were looking for Bigfoot because there are a bunch of Bigfoot sightings out there and we didn't see any Bigfoot that night, but we did see these really strange lights that kept bobbing through the trees. And, you know, this is where a lot of the folks who are really still clinging to the idea that Bigfoot is a flesh and blood creature will jump in and say correlation isn't causation and they'll say all sorts of things about these things not being related i would i sympathize with that but tim succinctly put it to me in two ways and he said number one he said uh, he said because there are some there are some ufologists who say oh the ufos must be studying bigfoot it's like well you don't see a lot of ufos around you know, gorilla troops, and you don't see a lot of UFOs studying orangutans. So why are they studying this particular hominid? Um, but Tim also said that uh, to see a UFO, or in this case, you know, a ghost light is rare. And to see a Bigfoot is rare. How many orders of magnitude rarer is it to see both of them in the same place or both of them in close proximity to each other or both of them, you know, one shortly before or after the other. Um, it really does suggest that there is some sort of connection there, even if it's not explicit. Yeah, absolutely. And I really love the term you coined, the Wildnergeist. Is it Geist? Mm. Wildnergeist? Is that a good way of pronouncing it? The Wildnergeist. Yes. Yeah, okay. So, I've been informed that there's probably a better German way to put it, but the Wildnisgeist was a word that I came up with for wilderness poltergeist. And it was, again, taking back to that idea of these Class B reports, where there are these phenomena that, if you set them in any other context, they would be understood as poltergeist phenomena. And so much of the paranormal is context-dependent. I mean, you look at strange lights in a house, and it's a ghost. You know, it's a haunted house, it's a ghost. Um, if you look at strange lights above, you know, an old stone circle, it's a fairy bouncing above them. Um, and if you look at lights in the sky, it's a UFO. So similarly, you can take the same suite of things that were associated with poltergeists and place them in the forest. And now all of a sudden it's a Bigfoot, right? Even if you didn't see a Bigfoot. And my point is, you know, if you didn't see the Bigfoot, you can't say that Bigfoot did it. And it gets even more interesting when you look at, uh, I mean, because, you know, things like knocks and raps are 
hallmarks of poltergeist infestations. And uh, poltergeists not only happen as infestations, but they also happen um, in seances. You know, that was seances would manifest poltergeist activity. And one of the means of communicating was through knocks and raps. And as luck would have it, there are a handful of instances where something that sounds strikingly like a Bigfoot has been manifested during a seance. Um, in around the early 1900s in Paris, a medium by the name of Auguste Politi levitated a table. He would produce strange lights, but he also had uh, supposedly was able to manifest this hairy hand that would touch sitters around the table. Perhaps the most explicit example of this was in the 1950s. There was a paranormal author by the name of Stan Gooch, who's English, and he was he was at a seance in Coventry, and he claims that during the seance he saw this ape man, this manifest in the room, and he couldn't really say whether or not it was a human being covered in animal furs, or it was actually like you know a, a human ape hybrid, but it did. According to him, it was in the room. So you do, I mean, there's even a story that we talked about of a Bigfoot appearing close to a, a Ouija board session. So it does suggest that maybe um, if these things are all, if they all share a root source, then maybe the hairy wild man in the woods is the rarest form of it, right? And the, these other things that we associate with Bigfoot, like wood knocks and strange howls and strange footprints are more common manifestations of this of the same source and under certain conditions it actually appears as a bigfoot yeah yeah absolutely and you know the idea of interacting with these beings this phenomena through seance is very similar to what we were talking about earlier with this shamanistic practices i mean they go into a trance state to perform this transformation whether into werewolf or dogman or even sasquatch potentially but i wonder how much you know given that all of this is so mystical and really intangible inherently how much we can rely on things like maybe astral dreaming uh, or astral projection experiences i had a guest on the show once that described going to a place that was known he knew where this place was but he was in an astral form he left his physical body and there he interacted with a whole group of sasquatches and a whole group of aliens as well and they were kind of you know doing their own thing and surprised to see him there and uh, you know and it just it didn't feel like it was a construction of his own mental world because it didn't really you know he kind of intruded on whatever they had going on and i mean maybe you know i don't want to limit any one person's uh, imagination but what he was describing sounded like something that was going on independent of him and he just happened to get involved and interact with it and maybe you know going into our astral body is a way of experiencing this world in the same way that you know a hunter goes in the woods and kind of negates his ability to experience that world because you know, they're going in with this kind of fear mindset. Somebody who goes in with maybe more of a psychic uh, uh, positivity kind of vibe, uh, you know, maybe they're more inclined to see this kind of stuff. I don't want to be too biased towards hippies like myself, but I think uh, I think there is something to that. This whole, you know, positivity, you know, love first kind of mindset. These beings are potentially you know, more accepting of that. Obviously, there are the outlying negative encounters, but there are positive ones as well. 
Well, you know, along that same line of thinking, it's probably the reason that cryptozoology always comes up empty handed because there's this real sort of bag it and tag it um, mm. mentality going on there. You know, I mean, even if you can find cryptozoologists who don't think we should kill Bigfoot, um, they think that they would love to capture a specimen or something like there has to be some sort of tangible proof like that. But because you want to pin it down so much, I think it's just going to continue to remain elusive. Um, and yeah, I think that it's possible that altered states of consciousness do play a role in Bigfoot sightings. It's not as obvious as it is in the UFO mythos, but it does, there do seem to be some indicators. Um, I noticed that there are a certain number of Bigfoot encounters that involve strange hums or buzzes, um, which, you know, is a real hallmark of a lot of altered states of consciousness, including psychedelic use and near-death experiences and the UFO thing. But it's also, you know, um, drones are also used in a lot of indigenous practices to sort of facilitate and assist in these altered states of consciousness to commune with the spirit world. And uh, you listen to some of these stories of people who claim that they've been targeted by Bigfoot infrasound, which is, you know, these, it's the opposite of ultrasound is these super low frequency sounds. At least that's the explanation for it, right? You know, we do know that certain animals in the animal kingdom use infrasound to stun prey, including tigers and dolphins. Um, but, uh, and we know that infrasound can manifest certain physical symptoms like nausea and disorientation and uh, vision problems and things like that. But again, until we have Bigfoot, a Bigfoot, um, we don't know that they're capable of actually generating infrasound. And so, you know, um, there are stories where this buzz sort of seems to be connected in the eyes of the witness to uh, infrasound and to these certain symptoms. Um, but it also asks the, also begs the question if there's not some sort of exterior source that is manipulating human consciousness into an altered state that sort of facilitates the contact with these beings. And that would be very much in line with, you know, some of the indigenous ways that these beings were looked at as being part of that spirit world and sort of uh, walking the line, again, between the spirit and the physical right right yeah i mean it is such a fascinating topic and you know i'm grateful to have someone like you at my disposal to talk about these things because you know oftentimes reading books like yours bring upon so many questions and you know just excitement about you know hey what are we gonna find out there right and I don't know. I wonder if it works in the opposite, where the more you know, the less likely you are to interact with these beings. But uh, I do want to have Mike Cleland on the show at one point in time, hopefully soon. And I know you're familiar with his work uh, and you have a section in the book that talks about the owl moon. Is there a connection between owls and Bigfoot? I didn't get a chance to get to that chapter yet. I'm guessing that's what that chapter's about, Bigfoot and owls coinciding. Yeah, there's there are a lot of allusions uh, through eyewitness testimony of people saying that they hear an owl, but it sounds like a 500-pound owl, <laughs> um, which goes down into a different sort of way of looking at where a certain section of subset of reports of Bigfoot being this fantastic mimic and being able to perfectly, almost perfectly 
mimic human voices and mimic sounds. Um, again, we were talking about all these fantastic abilities, these things that Bigfoot is the best at in any sort of uh, among all the animals, right? Apparently, Bigfoot's the best mimic too. <laughs> um, you know, uh, better than a liar bird, as it turns out. But uh, there is um, a subset of the Sioux who refer to this being known as Indusinga that was uh, referred to as a large trickster, but it was sometimes it was, it would hoot like an owl, uh, but it was also sometimes referred to as being monkey-like and as being large and hairy and would sometimes appear as an actual gigantic owl. It's interesting, in a lot of Renaissance art, there are depictions of apes alongside birds. And the idea was that the ape was a symbol of man's carnal desires. In other words, a symbol of the devil. We talked about the devil. Reaching for the the effervescent um, spiritual aspect of man, human beings, symbolized by the, the bird. And a lot of times those birds would be owls in that case. Um, you know, on, on another sort of... Uh, thread there are these they're called i didn't know what they're called because i'd always seen them you know growing up in movies and stuff but when you know you've got two thieves who are stalking a property and they have a certain call that they want to you know a bird call or something that they want to make between each other to communicate those are called i believe they're called contact calls and there's an entire subset of study dedicated to contact calls but one of the most common contact calls is an owl because you know you wouldn't really necessarily notice an owl and they're easy to reproduce by human beings so there's this implication that maybe um that maybe owls uh the owl call is being used by bigfoot to communicate as well yeah very stealthy to do that and it kind of brings to mind, I know that owls don't necessarily have this coloration going on, but I recently went down a rabbit hole of looking at the biological phenomenon known as structural diffraction. And you, one, one of the examples of this is a peacock feather. It's an entirely brown feather, but when our eyes see the light reflect, refracting off of it, it appears to be colors like green, purple, blue, and I wonder if in a more advanced way, similar to the way that an octopus has this going on internally where it can change its colors to match its environment using a similar concept, but on the electric scale in its actual molecular biology, it does the same thing that a peacock feather does. What if Sasquatch has this sort of concept going on? And, you know, you described the hum, right? That drone, maybe it's not you know, light that's being altered, but sound and, you know, as human beings, our understanding of our realm is slowly being chipped away at. And I think we're only just beginning to realize that our scientific understanding has a lot of, you know, quantum loops, <laughs> quantum loopholes and all kinds of things that would need to be sorted out. Well, it occurs to me uh, that there's also a mammalian precedent for that too. Um, you know, you often, one of the facts that you learn as a child is that, you know, polar bears' fur isn't actually white. It's, it's clear and it refracts the light back to you. So I think there has been a a little bit of speculation that Bigfoot hair might have similar properties. And that's what accounts for stories of Bigfoot cloaking. But again, like how unique is this animal? You know, <laughs> how many unique attributes does it have? Right, yeah. right. Well, 
maybe it's not the case that Sasquatch has this, but maybe it's like nature reflecting a larger kind of macrocosmic sort of thing where maybe smaller order creatures have this going on externally, but the higher up the orders go, it becomes like a you know, like an organ that they can like, or a muscle that they can flex. I mean, I'm just speculating here. I don't know that there's any biological basis for that. But uh, Josh, this has been really fantastic having you back on the show again. I still got to get Timothy Renner on. I know he has an awesome podcast called Strange Familiars. And you yourself have a blog. People can go and check it out at joshuacutchin.com. That's going to be linked in the description. Is there anything else you'd like to promote or share before we wrap up? Well, since we're talking about where the footprints end, uh, I recently had the good fortune of seeing Timothy Renner in person uh, for the first time in four years, which means it's also the first time since where the footprints end has come out that I've been able to see Tim. So uh, we have in our possession, both of us, uh, there are a couple of copies floating around that have where the, the owners have accomplished this. But in terms of being sold, uh, I do have copies of where the footprints in volume one and volume two signed by both myself and by Tim. Uh, so anybody who's interested in that, I can reach out to me and we'll get a copy sent your way. Wonderful. Right on. Well, unfortunately, mine aren't signed. That's okay, though. I did get them uh, secondhand from somebody who was sort of liquidating their book collection. And I saw the two and I was like, boom, got to grab those. That's Uh, fine too. Yeah. But yeah, they have a good home now on the shelf. And yeah, always happy to have you back on the show. And I look forward to the next conversation, maybe about your next book, or maybe we'll just, you know, have you on for a round table or something and get some other perspectives in on this. But either way, it's always great talking to you. And until next time, folks, thank you for tuning in. Immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are, in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Joshua Cutchin. Be sure to go and check out his book. His work is linked in the description. You can find his book wherever books are sold, but I would recommend getting a signed copy from the man himself. His website is linked in the description. Of course, if you want to hear the full episode today, I did an extended outro where we read, uh, just myself read some excerpts from where the footprints end. We didn't really read many uh, firsthand eyewitness accounts in this episode which was fine. Uh, I think the conversation went really well, but I wanted to share some of those with you guys. So if you sign up today to support the show, you can hear all that. Of course, the supporters, they're hearing that right now instead of this. Their outro is much longer. So you get more for your $5 a month. You support the show. You make sure that I'm able to do this three episodes a week. I hope people have been enjoying that three episodes a week lately. And yeah, if I keep getting support, we're going to continue doing three episodes a week. I recently started using ads on the show, and uh, yeah, that's helped freed up a lot of time that I would have spent working uh, not on the podcast. So yeah, here we go. I hope you guys enjoy. And if you can endure the ads, well, that's fine. But if you want an ad-free experience, you can listen to the show by signing up to support the show on Patreon. Substack or Rockfin, not all of the episodes 
have a video component. It's totally dependent on the guests. Some guests, uh, their internet connection isn't great, so we decide to turn the video off 10 or 20 minutes into the conversation. Uh, that way, the uh, you know there's no lag and all that stuff. So, anyways, uh, yeah, little little behind the scenes for people. But anyways, please do sign up to support the show. You get tons of bonus content, additional uh, add-ons to each episode, extensions to each episode. You can say uh, you get an ad-free experience. You get bonus episodes that don't go out on the RSS feed that you're listening to this stuff now. And you get your own RSS feed that you can listen to on whatever podcast app you prefer. So you don't even have to use the Patreon website or the Substack website. Substack also does the RSS feed. So very cool stuff. A great way to uh, support the podcast you love and also maximize your experience. I mean, it's a no-brainer. So enough about that. Uh, Go and check out our friend Isaac and his Oregonite. If you use the promo code MFTIC, you'll save 10% off at checkout. And you get a little bit of kickback my way. So that's a good way to support the show. Isaac does custom work. He also uh, has has these really great Oregonite pyramids available. And I know we've already sold a couple of them. And the episode's only been out for two days. So that's awesome. Thank you to all of you who supported Isaac already, the handful of people who did. And yeah, if Organite is something you need, which trust me, if you don't have it, you need it. Um, go and check out Isaac Organite. Organite. Uh, they have a website and they have an Instagram. So, and also our friends over at the Hit Kit number one way to get lit i'm about to get lit before i record this extended outro that i was just talking to you guys about so why stop the fun here join me over on the patreon slash substack to maximize the experience that's what i'm going to be doing i've been watching the a team all day on a rainy day stayed inside watching the a team for way too long so now i'm recording this very late So a little window into my world. I'm going to be talking a little bit about the A-Team some more in the Patreon-only, Substack-only extended outro. So we'll see you there. And until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. M-F-T-I-C. Yeah. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages, hijacking perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it, and the system is unraveling I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey, I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts, never hold back 
I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian bases Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway, I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Rob him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy, you might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are we the ones who gonna expose the whole facade.